In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's deputy foreign editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and in Dublin. This week, vaccine wars. The post-Brexit landscape is once again pockmarked with simmering disagreements over whose contract with AstraZeneca is the best and who's exporting more vaccines around the world. And while Boris Johnson maintains a diplomatic poise on the vaccine issue, His front seat driver on post-Brexit relations, David Frost, has been facing some tough questions from the grizzled and wise heads of his fellow Westminster peers. And the same House of Lords has issued its final committee report on the impact of Brexit. We'll also hear about why Irish Ferries has taken on the big beasts of the Dover-Calais sea crossing. But first, this week, EU leaders weighed in again on the problems of the EU's vaccine rollout and on whether Brussels should impose more restrictions on vaccine exports. And that was occupying your time, Tony, until late last night, even after the nine o'clock news had wrapped. Ursula von der Leyen was on her feet giving a press conference, although we heard, I think, a slightly more conciliatory tone than we did maybe in the days teeing up the summit. It was more export control measures as leverage rather than leaving the pistol on the table. Yeah, Colm, I mean, this is slightly moving out of the Brexit lane, but since Brexit and the vaccine rollout in Europe are so intertwined emotionally and politically... It has the main ingredients... This does, yeah, this does qualify for a Brexit Republic podcast, I think. But yes, of course, the EU rollout has been very troubled in the first quarter. There have been a lot of questions about the EU's approach to getting vaccine doses from the big pharmaceutical companies. Of course, as, as we know, the European Union negotiated as a block to procure vaccines. And that has been, according to many people, that, that really was the problem, that the, the Commission was ill-equipped to do that kind of negotiation. They secured contracts too late and and not enough contracts and not enough doses and so on. That's a very complicated discussion that we can have. But since Christmas, the the big focus of attention has been AstraZeneca, which was due to supply millions, tens of millions of vaccine doses to the EU in the first quarter from very early on in January failed to meet its delivery targets dramatically, delivering only 30 million doses instead of 90 million doses in the first quarter. And it looks like it's only going to deliver 70 million doses compared to 180 million for European citizens in the second quarter. And the the central dispute here, which is kind of Brexit related, is that the EU believes that AstraZeneca kind of did a very 
duplicitous thing and negotiated a contract with both the UK and the EU for essentially the same doses that, and that this con- these two contracts were ultimately contradictory and, and not m- mutually uh, applicable. So it, it has boiled down to you know a fairly naked fight between Europe and Britain over who should have got the doses and especially since millions of these doses were actually made in the EU but then shipped to the UK, but none kind of came in in the other direction. And as a result, Europeans feel that they've been deprived of tens of millions of vaccine doses at a time when Europe is facing into a third wave, a lot more problematic lockdowns in countries where it's politically already extremely fraught. Angela Merkel, the German chancellor, was almost forced to resign this week. Given that she's been in power for over 15 years, you can just imagine how momentous that would have been. But that was because she ordered a lockdown over Easter and then had to retract in rapid order because of the backlash that she received and then she had to apologise to the Bundestag. So this is extremely politically taxing and controversial and at the heart of it is this question about whether or not Europe should have got those AstraZeneca vaccines. As a result of that, the Commission has been trying to tighten up its export restrictions so that instead of vaccines going to the UK or elsewhere to countries that don't really deserve or need the vaccines, they would instead be part of a security of supply for European citizens. And that's really what the, what the summit was about. Right. And with the exception, I think, of COVAX countries, isn't that the case that countries that are not well provided for vaccine-wise would be looked after, but countries that are rolling out a comprehensive vaccination programme that have spare capacity and that aren't exporting their own vaccine capacity, and it, it sounds very much like we're only talking about one country here back into the European Union, they would be the primary target of these measures, which is, let's face it, the UK. Yes, this is the whole question that the EU is trying to address. And I have to say that, you know, that we've reported before in the podcast on when the Commission brought in its initial export authorization program back at the end of January, and that's when they famously attempted to invoke Article 16 so that the the new regulation would apply to Northern Ireland and that there wouldn't be any vaccine doses getting into Great Britain via the back door of Northern mm. Ireland. We all know what it that was led like to. an extramarital yeah. affair. It caused months of hardship for three hours of abandon. <laughs> three hours. Well, oh, was it? Was it? Was it? That's only, impressive. <laughs> it was only in place for three hours. Not fifteen then. minutes then. <laughs> so um, yeah, so so that was the the, the sort of b- backdrop to that particular controversy. And what they've done now is they've they've brought in new criteria, which basically would suggest that if a country doesn't need vaccines coming from Europe, then they shouldn't get them. In other words, if they already have vaccinated a huge proportion of their population, or if they don't have a grave COVID situation, then that the, those doses should stay in Europe. But of course, as you say, we all know what this is about. It's about whether or not AstraZeneca can be can still be shipping tens of millions of doses to the UK under its contract with the UK when the EU would think, well, look, our contract is just as valid and you know we've been starved of vaccines and it's politically awful so this is what we're doing and right. you know quite quite a number of countries including Ireland the Netherlands Belgium Sweden had real concerns with this because they felt that this is the slippery slope into a vaccine trade war vaccine doses are made up of bits and pieces from around the world 
the UK produces lipid nanoparticles that are essential for vaccine production in Europe. What if you start restricting exports that could, you don't know where that could lead. But in the end, what they did was that EU leaders essentially gave tacit support to the Commission's idea because they feel that that leverage is important. You know, as you say, it's kind of leaving a gun on the table but not using it, while at the same time stressing that the EU wants to make sure that supply chains are not disrupted. And Ursula von der Leyen made this kind of circular argument that the EU brought in this transparency mechanism at the end of January. Now we can see where all these doses are being made. Now we can see clearly what these supply chains look like. And now we can see that the EU, in fact, is the entity that is exporting all around the world. 77 million doses, she told EU leaders, had been exported from Europe, including 21 million doses to the UK. And the UK had exported zero in return to the EU. So instead of trying to provoke a trade war, what she's doing is making their new restrictions into a virtue that shows how virtuous the EU has been in this whole question. Sean, the Prime Minister, the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, has maintained a reasonably dignified silence on all of this. The Health Secretary, on the other hand, has been the attack dog throwing raw raw red meat out for the domestic audience. Yeah, Matt Hancock saying that uh, the British contract was better than the EU contract, and that's contract law, folks, and that's why people in Britain are getting their vaccines and people in Europe are not getting their vaccines. As you say, though, Boris Johnson, a lot quieter on this issue. Perhaps he's a bit more cautious about these things. Perhaps he realises that there are genuine supply problems that he's facing right now. And really, the last thing he needs is to have a large chunk of the population with one dose of their vaccines in now, but quite a small group of the population, smaller actually than the EU, being fully vaccinated, getting the two doses in line with the manufacturer's recommendations. When you look at that group of of society, Britain is actually behind the European Union, quite considerably behind them. And now all of those people who are put out on a three-month wait for their vaccines, they're all due to get their vaccines starting right now. So there is a supply crunch facing Britain simply because of the way that they applied the vaccines. They cast the net widely over a lot of people and gave them all their first dose quickly to try and get the level of protection that is available from that. And that has had an effect on the mortality rates in Britain and the illness rates in the hospitals. It's worked so far. The problem now is to make sure that all of those people who've got the first dose get their second dose. And that could mean a delay to giving the under 50s their first dose of the vaccine unless they were to get an increase in supply of uh, vaccines even beyond the large supplies that they've already secured. That's why they were off in India trying to get a a deal with the Serum Institute over there which was blocked by the Indian government as far as we can see because of course they need vaccines in their own country as well and then the EU is of course the other big source of supply for vaccines for Britain as we saw from those figures from the European Commission. So anything that would put those supplies in jeopardy. Not a good idea from a British perspective because they do need to give a lot of people, a lot of the elderly people in particular, those all-important second doses to make sure that they are fully protected against COVID. And I think the fact that you're seeing, what is it, a third wave or a fourth wave or whatever it is, that's sweeping westwards across the continent, Boris Johnson warning, things that happen in the rest of Europe tend to happen here. I think he's just being rightly cautious that perhaps you might see another wave breaking here in the UK 
And if not enough of those elderly people have been protected fully from the vaccine, and we're still not sure of how long those effects last with people, whether it lasts for six weeks, eight weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, we're not sure. These things are so new, we just don't know. But there's a chance that the protections might have worn down a bit and that more people might get seriously ill if there's a third wave breaks in Britain over the next couple of weeks. So I think the Prime Minister rightly wants to play down the risk of a big disruptive spat with the European Union because he needs those vaccines. Okay. Well, yeah, just 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 on that on that point, if I may, there is a, a real factor here, which is the way this is being played out in the the press in the UK and on social media. Sean would be very familiar with this, but interestingly, Michal Martin, the Taoiseach, made the point last night during that video conference to his fellow leaders that they really needed to understand what it's like to be Ireland and to be so adjacent to that gust of hostility from the UK press and how demoralising it is for him as, as Taoiseach to be, you know, reminded in such a hostile way, you know, every five minutes on social media or uh, in every broadcast or newspaper headline how the EU has horribly messed up and the UK is soaring ahead in the vaccine race. And, and he made that point. And just as an interesting kind of addendum to that, Charles Michel, the president of the European Council, has struck up a, a kind of a rapport with Michal Martin, kind of using him as, as the conduit to understanding and interpreting the British mindset and the British dynamic because it was something that he wasn't that familiar with, even though he had been a Belgian prime minister. And also, just to end the point, um, using Ireland's closeness with the Biden administration as well as a key right. uh, kind of channel yeah. and vehicle of, of insight and information, especially on, on the Northern Ireland Protocol and the Good Friday Agreement. Right. Well, uh, Joe Biden himself, indeed, was speaking about his Irish roots only last night. Maybe let's hear a bit of that before we go back to Sean. When my great-grandfather got in a coffin ship in the Irish Sea, expectation was, was he, was he going to live long enough on that ship to get to the United States of America? But they left because of what the Brits had been doing. They were in real, real trouble. They didn't want to leave, but they had no choice. Sean, you're our resident conduit into the British mindset. It's up to you now to steer the ship back to matters formally Brexit, specifically David Frost, who was appearing in the House of Lords being questioned by the peers there. What were they probing him on and what was the atmosphere like? Well, uh, David Frost, uh, Lord Frost as he is now, and because he's Lord Frost, he's a member of Parliament and that allows them to appoint him to the Cabinet as he is now. So he's a, a Cabinet Minister, but he's not elected. So, therefore, where's the accountability? Remember that old charge of the unelected, unaccountable Eurocrats in Brussels telling people what to do? Well, we've got an unelected... Well, he's accountable now to the House of Lords because they passed a resolution last week saying that he would have to appear to do question time on Brexit matters. And so, because he can't go to the lower house or the other place, as they call it up there, the one with the green benches, he has to go to the place with the red benches and be questioned by his fellow lords of the realm. So off he went. Now, on his way up to the Houses of Parliament, he may have chanced across an opinion piece written by Chris Patton, former EU Trade Commissioner, former Governor of Hong Kong, Government Minister, etc., etc. European, uh, no friend of Brexit. Indeed, no friend of uh, David Frost either. According to this, he wrote in the piece, David Frost is to diplomacy what a chainsaw is to origami. Well... Anyway, uh, <laughs> off goes the noble lord into the House of Lords to answer questions. 
or in the finest traditions of Parliament not answering questions. Indeed, people could mistake him for a, a traditional Irish rebel, so closely did he cling to the old adage of whatever you say, say nothing. But he was questioned for getting on for an hour. A couple of um, key points, I think, that stood out. One was that he was asked several times about a veterinary agreement and whether that could help some of the problems that are faced by Northern Ireland in particular with the amount of checks and paperwork that have to go on in relation to food imports and exports. It's something we've talked about quite a bit on the podcast over the past couple of weeks. It's a lot about standardising the SPS regime on both sides of the EU and UK divide in order to reduce this friction, is it? Yeah, exactly. There are agreements in place with Switzerland has an an agreement like that and uh, New Zealand has an agreement like that. He was asked by Lord Mandelson, former Peter Mandelson, former EU Trade Commissioner and Government Minister, etc, etc, about this. He said, look, we have proposed to the EU an equivalence arrangement between us and the EU. Unfortunately, the EU was not open to that. We continue to be open to such an equivalence arrangement if the EU is interested in it. Now, he was pushed again by Baroness Ludford, a former MEP from the Liberal Democrats, about SPS. He said specifically the Swiss style. And he said the downside to a Swiss style SPS or veterinary agreement is that it would require our food and drink sector to accept laws that were not made in this country but the laws of the European Union, our old friend dynamic alignment there. And he said, as far as this government is concerned, that is quite a considerable downside to any such agreement, which is why we cannot accept one that is based on dynamic alignment. So that's where that one seems to be part. They want an equivalence arrangement. EU apparently not happy about equivalence, looking for the dynamic alignment, and there it sits. The other news point was that when they were talking about the Northern Ireland issues, he said, yes, we want to implement the Northern Ireland protocol, but it has to be done in a pragmatic and proportionate way, hence the moves to unilaterally extend the grace periods within those things. And he mentioned that there would be a meeting of the specialised committee of the joint committee between the EU and UK today, as we're recording, and we're you know, obviously waiting for any word back from that, but uh, alas, we, we uh, probably aren't going to be able to bring you any information on that. But at least they've, they're having that meeting today to try and work through what they're going to do with the Northern Ireland Protocol. But there were a couple of other interesting exchanges, and I think we'll play you a bit of that now, starting with a question from Lord Lamont of Lerwick, the former Chancellor Norman Lamont. Here's what he had to say. Lord Lamont of Lerwick. My Lords, may I too welcome the Minister. Is the Minister aware that some of us strongly support his unilateral action in extending the grace periods, without which there would be shortages of food and no medicines in Northern Ireland? Banning British sausages in Belfast hardly strengthens the Good Friday Agreement. But a temporary waiver is not a permanent solution to these problems. Is the Minister confident that for a permanent solution, there is sufficient flexibility and sufficient number of potential easements in the protocol to get a permanent solution, or is it going to require action under Article 16? My Lords, I thank my noble friend for his words of support for the uh, operational measures that we we took earlier this month. Uh, These measures are lawful and consistent with a progressive and good faith implementation of the protocol. Uh, and they are intended to avoid disruption to everyday life in Northern Ireland, which we would otherwise have seen. Uh, We're working with the Commission to see if we can find solutions to to those problems and many others on a more permanent basis, and we continue to pursue that actively. Baroness Hurry. 
my lords, I, I give full support to Her Majesty's government in taking the action to extend the grace periods on trade checks between GB and NI in the face of the belligerent attitude of the EU at the Joint Committee, I believe there was no alternative. But does the noble lord agree that the trade border is now on the island of Ireland at Belfast, Larne and so on? So if it can be there, is there any credible reason why it cannot be moved to inside the EU territory, i.e. in the Irish Republic, thus making the EU responsible for the protection of their internal market. I thank the Noble Baroness for her words of support uh, and acknowledging that we had no choice in the, uh, the operational measures that we took earlier this month. Uh, the protocol depends on cross-community support and consent of the majority of the Northern Ireland Assembly and as a matter of logic, uh, if that consent uh, were not to be renewed in the future, that would have uh, implications that all sides would need to consider at that point. So there you go, that's what David Frost actually sounds like when he's speaking in the uh, Houses of Parliament in the upper chamber there, answering a question to Kate Hoey of Independent nowadays, uh, used to be with the Labour Party. Also then in the House of Lords, they uh, had a, a clutch of reports came out from their European Union committee the last set of reports in that committee because that has now gone uh, into uh, abeyance and not going to be meeting anymore because Britain is out of the EU. Sad to see them go, really. They're an excellent committee. They produced some really fabulous reports down the years that gave brilliant insights into what was going on in the EU. They'll be certainly missed by uh, Anglophone hacks like myself and probably Mr Connolly as well. Yeah, uh, they were great. They, they were great. Long may their reports live on in the archives. One of the reports that came out talked about the trade in goods. Their headline for that is the trade in goods are significantly harder under the Brexit deal. No mention of Sherlock Holmes here, but yeah, this is true. It has become harder to do. Another report saying the government must act to reduce barriers to EU-UK trade in services. Baroness Donaghy chaired that subcommittee saying, yeah, we got some liberalisations in the areas of trade, but the big things, again, we talk about these a lot, the financial services equivalence decision to enable trade to flow more freely on financial services still hasn't been agreed yet. And indeed, the Financial Times is reporting today that there are already moves to diverge on financial regulation between the EU, that the British side seem to be pushing regulatory powers back to the industry itself, whereas the EU tends to be more prescriptive because it's trying to integrate a number of financial markets. Right. We'll definitely uh, knock another episode in market. Then. Oh, at least six um, <laughs> right. in the next six okay. weeks. Okay. Uh, so plenty to come on there. And a, a third report, just to mention, Piers dismayed at the growing food and farming trade frictions Lord Teverson uh, chairing that subcommittee saying we're dismayed that our agri-food sector is facing such high trade frictions, increases in paperwork and the preparation required for food and agriculture exports to the EU, presenting very difficult challenges, particularly for small businesses, also mentioning higher haulage rates, issues with groupage, parcel deliveries, putting further pr uh, pressure on food and agri-producers uh, and categorically stating there are now new barriers to the UK-EU relations and new administrative costs and burdens, which will be structural and long-term. So the Lords, as usual, not holding back on their views there. Sticking with the theme of agricultural exports, we've also had a survey from the Meat Processors Association of uh, Great Britain, and uh, their members are saying that uh, the extra trading costs for them are going to add between 90 and 120 million a year for extra long-term costs and they also fear 
that they're going to lose at least a fifth of their total export trade, most of which goes to the EU, and it's all because of these extra checks and delays in Brexit. They're talking about the three-day wait to cross the barrier, the, the border from UK into European Union. It's just too long. They're just losing too much shelf life for the product and the uh, people who buy the product are switching away to other producers inside the European Union because they just can't take the risks with the delays. So very gloomy stuff right. from the British Meat Producers Association. Okay, well, it's one of the producers of major producers of meat within the European Union is, of course, Ireland. And one of the vexed issue of the land bridge is something we've talked about on this podcast before, which is something else that's come up on your radar, Sean, in the form of Irish ferries and a new route they're opening. That's right. Uh, just uh, letting us know today that they are opening a new route. They usually operate on the Irish Sea, crossing between uh, Dunleary and Holyhead and Rosslare and Pembroke in South Wales, and also they run a ferry service to France. But now, for the first time, they're going to operate between the port of Dover and Calais. So they're now pitching themselves to Irish exporters and saying, you can just book with one company and we'll run a seamless operation if you want to go Dublin, Holyhead, Dover, Calais, one booking will see you right. I'm just wondering, they mentioned in this that they can be operated under the transit convention and they're trying to get that land bridge reinstated, I guess. There's been quite a drop in Irish trade running across the UK to get to mainland Europe. But So they mentioned the, the transit convention where you wouldn't have to go through the full customs checks if all you're doing is transiting uh, through the UK and offering this one ticket, I guess, service, one shipping company, certainly. Just wondering again, remember that old idea we were kicking around a few weeks back or a few months back now? Would there be some kind of a special direct lane for Irish uh, exporters who are just doing transit runs yeah. uh, to try and get them through the port of Dover quickly? Who knows? This might be the, the green lane that they've been talking about. See if that one ever comes to pass. Yeah. But certainly this might make it a, a little bit easier for uh, Irish exporters to get back on that land bridge, which is the quickest and uh, cheapest route to get to continental Europe, although there are issues, of course, with driver fatigue and the tachograph on the other side, which right. makes the direct shipping routes very competitive as well. Well, in the current climate, I suppose we, we shouldn't hold our breath. Tony, I was just going to ask you, going back to the, the, the item we started off with, and Sean, if you'd come in on this as well, even though the vaccine toxicity has created quite a deal of friction between the European Union and the UK, Boris Johnson was saying that they would sit down and try and hammer out some kind of a practical arrangement in order that there wouldn't be a disruption to vaccine supply. It provides another forum for EU-UK communication that's trying to move towards the positive resolution of something. Is there a silver lining in this that perhaps something that has been born out of friction is at least moving in a potentially positive direction and opens up another channel of dialogue that may actually help grease the wheels of the entire Brexit thing as well? That's a very good point, Colm. And it was notable when the UK and the European Commission surprisingly issued a joint statement during the week talking about a win-win situation for EU and UK citizens and that both sides were taking specific steps to solve this issue of AstraZeneca, although the company wasn't named in the statement, but we all knew what they were talking about. They would take steps in the short, medium and long term. And it, it struck me that this was actually the first joint EU-UK statement that was not about the Northern Ireland Protocol since Brexit took effect three months ago. And 
you know, I think, you know, if they can solve this, this is such a human story and it has touched the lives of people across the, the Europe and the UK, no matter what their persuasion is. There, There is the potential there for some kind of emotional component to this that, you know, has been missing in the, you know, the very brutal transactional relationship that is Brexit. And of course, as Sean has been saying, the UK is in a bit of a squeeze at the moment because of the second dose issue and the EU is where Pfizer doses come from. So, you know, the UK needs to make sure that stuff does still flow from the EU. But, you know, the fact that they were able to sit down and get to talk about this and they sent Tim Barrow, former ambassador to the EU from London, from the Foreign Office over to Brussels to take part in these discussions with the Commission over the AstraZeneca issue and it turns out that the cast of these talks has got bigger and more officials have joined so it sounds like they are getting into quite some detail not just about AstraZeneca but in general how can both sides feel that they are getting their fair crack of the whip when it comes to to vaccines. It's also probably worth pointing out as well that there there does seem to be genuine optimism at EU level that the second quarter is going to be a lot more different. We are looking at over 300 million doses entering the equation from the 1st of April for the European Union. Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson's 55 million doses coming on stream. Of course, that's a one-dose vaccine. And there is, despite the awfulness of the first quarter, there is genuine belief at EU level that they can hit the target of vaccinating 70% of the adult population by the summer, whether that's June, June or July. Of course, getting the numbers of doses into member states is one thing, but then member states themselves have to rule out the vaccination programmes themselves. And of course, there has been a bit of a, a patchy picture so far from, from one member state to the other. Mm. Sean, I suppose the stakes for not reaching agreement are quite high because you can break vaccines and doses down, or at least you can correlate them to sickness and death. So not to achieve a deal on this is pretty high stakes and has the potential to result in further toxicity amongst, you know, some of the more extreme areas of the commentariat. Well, indeed, and, and this vaccine issue has become Brexit by other means over the past few uh, weeks. For those who want to make it so, which includes large sections of the conservative-leaning press, which is basically uh, almost all the English dailies, a lot of the commentators as well, and obviously online, it's become a, a rallying point for them. Also, the Conservative Party itself, because remember, this is about the only thing that has gone right for them in terms of the pandemic. They've had the highest death toll in Europe. These are issues that probably would have gotten a, a, a lot more ventilation if there hadn't been a COVID pandemic. And certainly there'd be a lot more focus on the trade disruption that uh, it has flown from Brexit. But that has been obscured largely because of what's happened with COVID. So Which suddenly, is, you know, looking coming up to coming up to Christmas, it was looking pretty bad. You got that huge spike in the deaths as well that really came very, very close to overwhelming the NHS here in the UK. But suddenly they had the vaccines, the vaccines were going out and they also took that big punt that nobody else has done of spreading the doses instead of every three or four weeks out to three months, the gap between them, which meant they could cover an awful lot of people in ways that other countries by pursuing the, the two-dose regime simply could not do, no matter how fast they vaccinated people. So 
it has worked for them as a, a morale booster. It has worked uh, so far, as we can see, uh, from a public health and safety point of view, which is, of course, the most important one. But it has now probably reached the point where they do need to damp this one down and get on top of it because Boris Johnson does have a lot of other issues out there. He recently launched that big security policy last week which talked about security in the the European area being their primary concern. He's also hosting the G7 summits this year, so he's got to get the EU countries, including the EU Commission and Presidency, uh, they're going to be attending that, that summit as well. So the EU is part of that G7 group. And then there's the climate change COP26 in November up in Scotland, which uh, he is also hosting. So there's a lot of big issues that he's trying to line up and look for fora in which he can try and exhibit some kind of British leadership or show that despite leaving the European Union, Britain is not turning its back on the world, wants to be seen to be having friendly relations. Getting into a row with your biggest trade neighbour over something as as difficult as vaccines isn't going to look good, has the potential to wreck a few of the other plans that the Prime Minister wants to see coming to fruition during the year. And it's probably a good idea for those reasons. You can call them selfish if you want, but there are perfectly good reasons in terms of diplomacy not to carry on with this thing. It's also probably just a good idea for the long run of relations with your nearest neighbours, not to get into a, a big serious row like this. Whether he can rein in some of the wilder elements in the media has yet to be seen, but uh, certainly there is very good reasons to try and come to agreement with the EU on this. Okay. All right. Well, let's have a look ahead to the coming week. Tony, anything coming up on your radar of Brexit significance that's worth keeping an eye on? Well, just on on the subject there of vaccines, those discussions between the Commission and the UK are ongoing uh, and they're going to be talking over the weekend, I understand. So we'll keep an eye out to see if there is any breakthrough. And just on the issue of AstraZeneca, while I'm here, I just noticed that the European Medicines Agency has this afternoon approved the Helix plant in the Netherlands, which is a subcontractor for AstraZeneca. And this is very important because they have produced millions of doses of AstraZeneca vaccines and the suspicion was that they were poised to go to the UK but the Dutch government would step in and say no under the EU's export authorization scheme if they're in breach of an EU contract with AstraZeneca then they can't leave the European Union. A weird sidebar to that story was that the plant itself still hadn't been approved by the European Medicines Agency. The Commission were saying it was the fault of AstraZeneca because they hadn't provided information to the EMA but in any case the EMA has just this afternoon approved the Helix plant in Leiden in the Netherlands as uh, authorised to produce and export vaccines. So the big question now is where they go? Once, where do they go? I think at this stage AstraZeneca wouldn't dare to try and send them to the UK so they well, may they, they may stay put and, and uh, find their way, their way somewhere else. Alrighty. Sean, anything on your radar? Well, we've no parliament now. They're, they're only for temporarily, of course. They're, they're gone for a three-week Easter break so nothing uh, coming out necessarily from uh, Westminster. We do, of course, we'll have to report back to you on this uh, specialised committee meeting between Lord Frost and Maros Shevchovich today. See what that brings. Uh, we'll bring that actually, to you next uh, week. Actually, just as also, we speak, uh, we just, I have just oh, received oh, oh. a text message. Breaking news on Brexit Republic. Go for it. I have just received a 
statement from my one of my UK contacts saying the seventh meeting of the specialized committee was held today via video conference took place in a constructive atmosphere a representative from the Northern Ireland executive also attended as part of the UK delegation in line with the commitment made in the new decade new approach deal that was the deal that restored uh, the Stormont executive. The UK and EU took stock of the outstanding issues raised by both parties and discussed the way forward. The UK made clear that continued progress would require action from the EU as well as the UK. Accordingly, the UK set out its expectation that establishment of an agreed work programme would help to ensure the acceptable resolution of those issues in a way that ensured minimum disruption to everyday life in Northern Ireland. Now, that's obviously the roadmap that the UK has been asked to produce on how it intends to implement the protocol and in return for that roadmap the the EU has sort of signalled that they would look at some of these greater flexibilities and extending grace periods and so on. The UK also welcomed the EU's commitment jointly to engage with business, civil society and other stakeholders in Northern Ireland and agreed there should be further dialogue in the coming weeks, noting the need for ongoing engagement and the need to make meaningful progress in a constructive fashion. Both sides agreed to remain in regular contact contact in the coming weeks it goes on it goes on for another paragraph but you get but you get the picture it sounds it sounds quite positive and uh, fuzzy yeah yes Sean any comments to make on that breaking news breaking news on well breaking news on a podcast who'd have thought such a thing but it Mm. it doesn't sound like there's that much news in it more process and and continuation of it so the only bad news there I guess is that having promised you a a full report on it next week uh, we mightn't have a full report on it next week unless we all start to get a, a, a little more information But I I guess there are sources. uh, There's no kind of. But it doesn't sound like it's a breakthrough. Well, it's not a breakthrough, but clearly. It, it, it's the, not a the break more it stays in, no breakdown e- no breakdown either yeah. not a yeah. breakdown no, no but break yeah it's down. clearly in so it's clearly in process land so that means the DUP again will be concerned that their wish to have the protocol binned altogether doesn't seem to be getting granted uh, anytime soon but we'll see okay yeah, well I mean Lord Frost did say to them during that uh, that question time um, that the British government is committed to implementing the protocol it just needs to make a few tweaks and changes to make sure it's it's uh, operating in a way that doesn't interfere with the daily lives of people in Northern Ireland, which uh, it was, he says, intended not to do. And I think uh, the Irish government would certainly agree with that view as well. What else will we have to talk about next week? I don't know, but we, we do have the first full week of campaigning in the Scottish elections, which just kicked off, well, really today, because uh, Alex Salmond has come back and launched a new political party this very afternoon called ALBA, which is trying to get uh, what he calls a super majority for independence in the new parliament. That'll add a bit of spice to that one, of course. Brexit a huge issue in Scotland where the people voted against it. The whole issue of independence very much being driven once again because of that Brexit vote and uh, the uh, opposition between the ruling regime in Edinburgh and the uh, governing regime in Westminster been playing out now for a long time in the uh, Westminster Parliament but now it's going to be played out in an electoral forum so that test will be fascinating to watch the go to the poll on May 6th up in Scotland but let's maybe come back to that one next week Okay, alright well amid that dizzying maelstrom of news that's it from me Colm O'Mungai Nortee's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin From me Sean Whelan in London And from me Tony Connolly in Brussels Thanks for listening 